Hello and welcome to this PSG Think Big series podcast. In this program, Alicia Sekum speaks to Busisiwi Mavuso on the future of the partnership initiative between business and government. Hello and welcome to the Think Big series brought to you by PSG. I'm Alicia Seckham and today we're taking a closer look at SA Inc. stepping up to the plate and playing its part in getting South Africa back on track. Of course, amongst others, the increasing cost of power cuts, deteriorating water supply and inefficient transport and infrastructure networks are all weighing on earnings, directly impinging on the future of business. But has business been loud enough when it comes to holding leadership and government to account? Because it has to move beyond just a turning off of capital flow and redirecting it somewhere else, right? So when there's perhaps never been more of a time to break the silence, we talk today about the role private sector has to play in demanding action from government and in creating an environment conducive to investment and doing business. Mrs. Siwe Mavuso, who's CEO of Business Leadership South Africa, certainly hasn't been holding back. She's been louder than ever about what needs to be done if we are to grow anywhere as a country. And she joins me now. Busi, thanks so much for your time today. And right at the top, an off-the-books corruption investigation. Is this how SA Inc. starts showing that it means business, that it's serious about finding the rot in the system, no matter the cost, and holding those responsible to account so that we have the right leadership steering the way forward? Alicia, good day. Um, it's interesting that the work that we've done with ESCOM is characterized as off-the-books. It's not really off-the-books. When the request came, it was a request for us to be able to help ESCOM to uh, gather or gather data, data that was going to be given to the criminal justice system for them to be able to do their job. And you can imagine the frustration that the ESCOM board and the ESCOM CEO in particular has actually been experiencing for the past three years that he has been in office, when he's actually been trying to get the police and the criminal justice system in its entirety to do what is supposed to be done. I mean, we know the rot that is at ESCOM. We know that the foundation on which ESCOM is sitting is, is, sitting is rotten. We know that the reason why the Zondo Commission took four years, you know, uh, and 80% of the time just to focus on ESCOM and trust that alone, it's because of the magnitude and the scale of corruption and malfeasance that actually happened there. But with all that evidence, you know, you've seen very little coming from, you know, people being uh, sent to jail or people being taken to task and whatever the cases. And whenever you would give information to the police, they would actually push back and say, there's not enough evidence for us to be able to do anything. So he therefore decided that maybe let me approach the private sector and see if they can help me fund this uh, data uh, gathering exercise, which is exactly what we did. And we stand by that report, because if not the private sector, then who? We've got a vested interest in making sure that ESCOM works, uh, Alicia. This is the single biggest existential threat that we have as a country. And if we're not going to sort that out, you know, then we can forget about having a conducive trading environment within which to operate. 
Well, see, I start with that question because in this instance, we were looking at what 18 million rand of business leadership South Africa's coffers pumped into 50 million rand worth of an investigation that was dubbed Project Ostrich, right? It's private funding used to conduct intelligence gathering around state-owned enterprise. And I'm not going to get into the detail of that now. What I do want to get into is the fact that this points to the still massive trust deficit between private sector and government, no? It's it, 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 not really. I think it points to the fact that you still have a public sector that is not capable. You still have a private sector that doesn't, or public sector that doesn't have all the resources, the capability to be able to do what needs to be done, you know, and the private sector has got a vested interest in making sure, you know, that these things happen, because if they don't happen, then they impact us just as much as they impact all uh, uh, of South Africa. So uh, uh, we therefore thought that we are going to put our money where our mouths are. We normally are uh, uh, being accused of standing on the sidelines and not contributing uh, to the solutions. And this is how the private sector, you know, bringing its might, bringing its, its resources, bringing its capability, you know, to be able to be part of the solution. Uh, and, and, and I think the, the, the ESCOM exercise was precisely, you know, uh, uh, intended to do exactly that. Because we know that if we get to the bottom of what is wrong at ESCOM, you know, then not only the private sector benefits, but the broader South African society, but government too gets to benefit, you know, so that we don't continue bleeding funds the way we are bleeding funds, you know, as a country. At the height of the state capture project, Alicia, in 2016, we committed as the private sector that never again will business go back to its barracks and never again will business stand on the sidelines and not be part of the solution. And one of the commitments that we made was that we are going to make sure that this government is a capable state. So an a capable state is part of our strategic focus and funding, you know, this data gathering exercise, which the police and the government failed to do, was part of the enabling a, a, a capable state uh, intervention. Busi, it's with this mindset that government and business has now agreed to work together in this recently announced partnership initiative to remove obstacles to inclusive economic growth. Do you see government coming to the party with enough political will to really engage business at the level we need to see this engagement happening? We have gotten that commitment from the president when we had the last engagement with him. If I'm not mistaken, I think that must have been on the... Hmm, the data lose me. Uh, uh, but it, it, it was in June sometime yeah. when... Early June. Early June, absolutely. You know, when we agreed that... Uh, and that was the first meeting, you know, that we had as, as business and government to try and give um, the president feedback in terms of what has happened in as far as the three work streams are concerned. And I think just the agreement that these indeed are the three uh, focus areas that we actually want to tackle as, as, as business and government. The president has given us this commitment that is, is going to hold his ministers and the rest of government accountable to make sure that they come to the party. We have committed that we are going to bring in resources, we're going to bring in the skills, we're going to bring in capability, but also we're going to bring our time. You know, if you look at that 
um, uh, intervention, you will see that each work stream is being co-chaired by two CEOs, two CEOs that have got a uh, full-time jobs, you know, at the moment, energy being uh, co-chaired by Fleetwood Frobla of Sasol, as well as Nolita Fagude of Anglo-American, uh, Crime and Corruption, Yanni Durand of Remgro and Neil Froneman of Sibanye, and uh, 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 the logistics and transport being Mpumizgalala um, of Kumba Iron Ore and Mpolisim Gojo X Xaro CEO. So you can see, you know, that these are people who've got their plates full at the moment and are being tasked to run their own companies, but they've chosen to actually take time out of their busy schedules to make sure that they give this enough time because we need to. Yeah. The sense has always been, though, Busi, that business pulls its punches, you know, cognizant of the risks that come with speaking out against government and how much trickier that could make doing business for them in an already difficult situation. At this point, are business leaders across the board willing to stick their necks out, call things like they are, no holds barred? And I think you've seen that, for instance, with the Lady R issue, which we think that, yes, ESCOM is the single biggest threat and the broader energy issue, but we know that if we don't sort out the Russia issue, you know, if we don't get to the bottom of the Lady R issue, then that is going to be possibly the final nail in South Africa's coffin. And we have seen CEOs coming out, you know, gloves off, you know, uh, 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 calling the president and government out, as we should, by the way, you know, and we are very clear from where we sitting, Alicia, that working with government doesn't mean that we get to be their praise singers. Neither does it mean that if business is not coming to the party, they shouldn't call us out. It precisely means that we get to speak truth to power, as we've always been doing. You know, it precisely means that we get them to understand the implications of their decisions. We sit in boardrooms that they don't, you know, we sit with investors and they don't have privy, you know, to those meetings. You know, we sit with the fund managers and we do the investment roadshow. So we have an obligation to actually uh, make them understand, you know, what the international community is actually saying, you know, at this time. And it's unfortunate because where we're sitting at the moment, there is serious concern, Alicia, when it comes to the international uh, community. Um, uh, uh, and you see that by, you know, the minimal foreign direct investment that we're currently sitting with, you know, as a country. Uh, because they don't think that our address is worth it, you know, at the moment. And I think that is the thing that government doesn't realize. Capital has many addresses to invest in. And if they are concerned about our address, uh, about our address as South Africa, they're actually going to, 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 to move on. So the overarching sentiment of the international community is that we've got mounting weaknesses as a country. You know, but we've got the Financial Times, for instance, you know, leading with headlines such as South Africa is uh, 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 South Africa's doomsday clock is, an, is, is at one minute to midnight, which is, you know, very concerning. And these are things that government needs to be aware of. But it doesn't mean that business always gets its way right whether you're looking at developments on the global scene or the local scene for that matter Busi. i mean let's use a local uh, scenario here government pushing through the very uh, recent nhi bill ignoring the red flags the private sector outcry and that highlights a risk in itself i mean you've pointed out that this recent decision's been met with lack of 
further outcry, suggesting that many have simply given up caring about it, even if there is no real implementation plan and no real funding plan? Is that a risk you're pricing in? If this partnership doesn't yield desired outcomes on the three priority interventions that have been outlined, almost a, well, we tried response. Yeah, so um, I think we, we, we're going to have to be here and be aware as a country that there's going to be a lot of populist policies, populist interventions that are actually going to come into play, you know, in terms of where we find ourselves at the moment. 2024 is around the corner, you know, and um, um, the ANC would obviously like to retain power. And I think they are going to throw everything at it, you know, to make sure that they get at least 50% or, or, or whatever the case is. Uh, we should probably maybe look out for a uh, BIG coming in as well. You know, the basic income grant being put in place. Uh, and, 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 and I think these are all populist measures that could actually be coming in. Have they been priced in? No, they have not been priced in. They've not been priced in because their response to the NHI is serious concern, you know, from the medical fraternity and the healthcare workers. You know, a lot of them are saying, we know how this story is going to end. We're actually not going to stick around, you know, to watch this happen. You know, a lot of them are already seeking opportunities outside of the country because they are not going to be subjected to have to work under the conditions of the public health care service and to have to actually deal with the NHI the way government is proposing that it actually should be implemented. You know, it's a... Um, it's going to be disastrous, you know, and, and it, it's really a, a, a not going to yield the positive results that government thinks it's going to yield. And um, things like that have definitely not been priced in, not by the local business community and definitely not by the international business uh, community and, 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 and uh, a broader investor community. Yeah, it's worrying, though, when, you know, the, the like I say, the red flags have been propped up and government still doesn't adhere. But I don't want to get ahead of ourselves here. Let's home in on this plan that business and government now has on the table. And you've highlighted three immediate priority interventions, energy, transport and logistics and crime and corruption. Where are things at? And bottom line, Busi, are we looking here at a credible plan? We are looking at a credible plan, um, a plan that um, is funded, you know, uh, by business in as far as, uh, for instance, raising the 100 million for the RMF fund. You remember we actually uh, launched the resource mobilization fund, I think it must have been a month ago or something like that. And the resource mobilization fund, uh, has actually been set up to make sure that we can capacitate NICOM. You remember the president came out in July 2020, if I'm not, uh, or was it July 2022? Time flies so fast. July 2022, when he actually spoke about the electricity crisis plan, which has got five interventions, you know, but unfortunately we put that plan in place, but there isn't the resources that are necessary to be able to make sure that we can deliver on that plan. So business has therefore taken it upon itself to actually set up the resource mobilization fund, which is actually going to make sure that NECOM is properly capacitated and we can make sure that we can uh, get the necessary skills that can be able to help uh, a government to be able to, to, to implement on the plan. And in as far as the three work streams are concerned, there is a very rigorous 
analytical process that has already been conducted to identify immediate priorities in all three areas. We have a very targeted approach, which has very clear, which has very clear objectives in energy transport and logistics and crime and corruption. And we are very clear, for instance, from an energy perspective, we are saying we've got clear four, uh, four clear objectives where we actually want to, number one, unlock rapid generation capacity build. Number two, improve the EAF of ESCOM conflict. Number three, rapidly scale residential and commercial rooftop solar. And number four, fast track gas to power. So you can see, you know, that it's very clear interventions. And I think once you have clearly articulated your objectives like this, it's very easy to then come up with a plan to say that if I'm trying to improve the EAF of ESCOM conflict, what does that mean and how do I go about it? And one of the things that we've identified as far as that is concerned, for instance, we've said we're taking the four worst performing power stations of ESCOM and we're going to send in the private sector capacity, you know, engineers and whatever support that is required to see if we can actually turn those around. So it's very tangible, you know, there's timelines that have actually been attached to it and we are very confident you know that if government holds up its end of the bargain and they allow the private sector to do what it's supposed to do and they collaboratively work with us the way they've promised you know we should be able to deliver on everything that we've actually set out on this plan and that's the crux of the matter right because mm -hmm. aside from all of that Busi, there's also going to have to be a strong alignment between government and business for that necessary le level of engagement and capital commitment to do what it's supposed to do to take effect does business have a clear understanding of how it's going to be feeding into the plan and do you see government allowing it to come to this table without its hands tied behind its back yeah um so when we 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 set out on this path we actually said that we are very clear that what we'd like to achieve as business and government is to put in place an initiative that is aimed at removing obstacles to inclusive economic growth and job creation um, and we are very clear what those are in as far as where we are currently sitting, you know, as a country, yes, there are a lot of obstacles, but we have chosen to focus on three uh, because for the investor and business community, the local operating environment has deteriorated to its weakest level, and we need to make sure that we improve it, you know, and I think energy transport and logistics and crime and corruption from where we're sitting at the 80-20, you know, it's 20% of the things that if we were to get right as a country would actually, you know, uh, give us a shift on 80% of, of, of the creation of a conducive environment, you know, as it were. But I think the litmus test for our efforts really and for the intervention that we're putting in place is going to be, you know, making sure that we get investment. Because remember, the president stood at the State of the Nation address at the beginning of 2023, you know, in February, and he actually spoke about trying to get two trillion rands worth of investment into the country uh, by 2028. So we therefore need to answer the question of, is our environment conducive um, for investment to land here? Because the reality of the situation at the moment, Alicia, is that we are losing a lot of investment to East Africa, you know, yeah. as a country. We are actually uh, are no longer 
the destination of choice, you know, when investors are looking at investing in the African continent, because we have to remember that the interest in South Africa, in as far as investment is concerned, is that South Africa gives them a gateway to the African continent. It is not really South Africa in and of itself. So if capital can land in South Africa, then they are going to look at another address. And they are currently looking at the East Africa address because that is giving them a more back for the a better yeah. back for their money. And it's obviously creating a, creating a better a, a, a environment as it were. So that is what is at stake here. And I think we have to be driven by that as business and government. We need to actually understand that that is the output, you know, that is the ultimate goal. And I think if we can put all our differences aside, you know, and uh, put the politicking aside, the narrow agendas aside, and make sure that we actually deliver this for the 65 million South Africans, as South Africans then would have won as, 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 as a country. You know, Busi, the skeptic who's listening to the conversation up to this point is going to say, well, what happens if government deviates from this plan? I mean, you've in fact said before that in most parts of government, there appears to be a lack of understanding of just how dire our economic situation is. And so no sense of urgency. And quite frankly, that's always been a hindrance to the implementation of the many plans we have stashed away in cupboards somewhere. So what engagement and oversight structures are in place to ensure adherence to implementation and then those firm timelines that you alluded to earlier yeah so um the um, the way this initiative has been set up is that it's not only business you know uh in the work streams and 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 in the chair uh, positions it's government as well you know uh it's the dgs it's the ministers there is regular interface you know between the relevant departments as well as the work streams you know we have actually assumed that um core model that we actually had during the COVID time, you would remember, Alicia, when we set up Business for South Africa, during COVID, it was business and government co-chairing these work streams, you know, uh, making sure that the solutions that are put on the table are solutions that are co-created. And if there's something that is not going to be practical about the solutions that we maybe propose as business or solutions that are actually being put in place, then because government is in the room, they'll be able to tell us what the difficulty might be, you know, for government to be able to shift some of the things that they need to shift to make sure that the plan can actually see the light of day, as it were. So I think that is the beauty of the co-creation. We are not sitting in our own little corner as business, you know, putting this solution together and selling it to government. You know, it's a co-creation exercise. And I think that is the strength of what happened in 2020. You know, that is why we got the COVID uh, issue right. That is how we got the vaccination issue right. You know, that is how we actually got the solidarity fund right. So we are actually banking on that model. We are saying that we've got a model that works, you know, that has been properly tested. And if we can actually uh, uh, utilize that same model to deliver, you know, on this crisis that we're actually facing again as a country, it should actually bear the fruits that we saw it bear, you know, uh, uh, during the COVID era. Okay, so you are leveraging off a tried and tested model here. Is structural rigidity going to be a problem, Busi, in implementing actionable solutions? 
structural rigidity in what way? Yeah, I mean, we've had private investment, national and sectoral business organizations, labor, uh, civil society groups, the IFF for that matter, all sounding the alarm, right? But it doesn't seem to be triggering much movement when it comes to, let's say, establishing efficient regulatory and policy frameworks. It shouldn't be a problem, Alicia, because um, we all agree, and I think this is a plan and an intervention that has actually been bought into by all the social partners. I think we all agree as a country that um, energy, transport and logistics, as well as crime and corruption, are the top three of our issues that we're actually facing as a country. Yes, there is a lot else that is not going right, but at least we all agree on those three. So we therefore should all be working together to say, how do we make sure that this works? You know, what is it? that we need to do to make sure that we can uh, see this being implemented. I think if you look at the issue of the energy and, and the electricity crisis at the moment, you would have seen government try and do its best, you know, to try and make sure that whatever regulatory rigidities that were set with that NASA, you know, are being amended. I mean, it goes as far back as 2020 when the president lifted you know, the license exemption from one megawatt, you know, to 50 megawatts, you know, and then to 100 megawatts, you know, and to uh, no limit, you know. Uh, so if that could be done, yes, it does take a little bit of time, but if that could be done to make sure that the energy crisis can be addressed, then we should actually see the same happening, you know, with crime and corruption, as well as with transport and logistics. At the moment, we are setting up an NLCC, National Logistics a crisis committee, if I'm not mistaken. So this is going to be the equivalent of NICOM. The same way that NICOM is actually looking at the electricity crisis plan, the NLCC is actually being set up to look at the transport and logistics, you know, crisis, because that is becoming a crisis. Uh, those companies that are actually importing and exporting goods out of the country will tell you how difficult it is to do that to, through Transnet at the moment. So we are therefore also going to be coming up with very four, five key interventions, you know, for NLCC, business is actually going to have to come up with a similar fund like the RMF, or we actually have to increase you know, the RMF to probably maybe another 100 million to make sure that we can capacitate the NLCC. This is the commitment that business has already made and, and yeah. we're actually working on it. So I, I really think that whatever shifts that are actually going to be required to be able to make sure that this works, you know, we are going to be able to do it. The president gave us, you know, that promise. You know, government might not have the fiscal muscle to lean against the crises that we're actually facing as a, as, as a country, but it does, however, have the policy tools to do it, you yeah. know, and this is what they must focus on, you know, to get the policy environment right, to mobilize the private sector investment, you know, and spending. And they've got the Operation Vulindela, for instance, that is actually doing brilliant work, you know, in as far as the skills visa are concerned, you know, and a whole lot of other interventions. You know, I think we're going to have to come to a point where we realize, Alicia, that dominating world economies have gotten the notion of partnership, you know, right. So we really have to lean into that as a country to say, how do we actually make sure that we utilize this partnership, you know, and of course, you know, along with it has to be meritocracy and the zero, uh, zero tolerance to crime. How do we actually make sure that we get this right to be able yeah. to move the country forward? I don't think any of us would like to see South Africa uh, fail. Absolutely. Maybe we need to lean into that and leverage on that. 
Absolutely. That being said, I'm going to take a step back from this table and I have a view now of each of the business representatives, each of the business voices that is seated here, possibly with their own agenda too, as well, Busi, driving business, if not for themselves, for their sector within which they operate, right? So how do you see business leaders divorcing itself from self-interest for the greater good and the bigger picture, where we're looking at a case of collaboration versus competitive advantage and profit. Yeah, you, you, you know, from where we are sitting as, as, as business, um, in helping Transnet, we are trying to get the transport and logistics uh, infrastructure uh, and industry right. You know, in helping ESCOM, we are trying to address the broader energy crisis. You know, in helping crime and corruption, we're actually yeah. trying to make sure that ours is a conducive environment. Um, so this is not driven by any narrow interest, you know, from business, but it is actually emanating from the fact that, as I said earlier on, you know, when we decided to come out of our barracks as business in 2016 at the height of the state capture project, we made a commitment, Alicia, that never again, you know, will business stand on the sidelines and criticize from, we're going to continue criticizing if we need to, but it's not going to be from the sidelines. You know, we made a decision that we're actually going to have to go into the boxing ring, you know, and make sure that we actually uh, uh, fight this fight alongside government, not with government. They normally think we are fighting with them. We're not fighting with them. We're fighting alongside them. And if fighting alongside, and if fighting with them to make sure that we can fight alongside them to win, then that is exactly what we're going to do. And this is what is actually motivating us, you know. Yeah. So we are really motivated by that bigger purpose because we know that, the scale of our problems is rather large, you know, and um, it's unfortunate that when we normally say that government normally tends to think that we are alarmist and we're not, you know, our CEOs will tell you, you know, how much of a difficult time they're actually having to try and convince their principals to continue investing in South Africa. Yeah, so I asked that. I asked that question, Busi, because, you know, we've got very loud voices and uh, against the privatization of SOEs, for example, and this is part of what those against the privatization of state-owned enterprises have front of mind. Yes, telecoms often cited as an example of, you know, business and government working together as a solution that could possibly be extended to ESCOM, to Transnet as well. Do you see privatization of failing government entities being the silver bullet? You know, it's interesting. Whenever we speak about privatization, um, people... A lot of people in this country seem to think that it is a swear word. I don't know why, uh, because privatization doesn't necessarily mean the withdrawal of services from the poor, uh, Alicia. And I think that is normally what the concern of most South Africans uh, is. You know, I think privatization in terms of where we find ourselves at the moment uh, 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 as South Africa is that you 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 cannot deny the fact that more private sector participation that is not the reason why we're doing this by the way but i think when you're looking at our issues from a macro perspective more private sector participation uh, capacity and capability 
is required to be able to deal, you know, with some of the challenges that we're facing. When you look at the uh, transnet and the transport and logistics issue, you know, for instance, you know, look at the Devon port and look at the Richards Bay port. The Richards Bay port, the infrastructure is 100% owned by government, but the operations are being run by the private sector. And when you look at how these two ports are performing, and we have a Devon port that is wholly, you know, owned and run by government. You know, look at how chalk and cheese these two ports are. So if you're saying that you already have a test case, you know, where the government continues owning the infrastructure and they just lease out, you know, the running of this thing to business, you know, how we can actually get the in, uh, efficiencies that the government on its own is failing to get. Why can't we therefore move to that model? You know, yeah. so it is not necessarily the private sector, you know, taking over. It's the private sector saying that allow us to utilize our knowledge, skills, expertise, capacity, you know, and capability to be able to make sure that these institutions run, you know, and I really think that we all agree that at some point, we're going to have to accept that we need to abandon the developmental state agenda that we're actually on as a country. You can't have a developmental state agenda when you've got a government that is failing to deliver on the basics. You know, if we can't get the basics right, then it's really concerning. It's concerning because then it means we don't have a business case to be able to sell South Africa. And the basics that I'm talking about, Alicia, the network industries, out of the four network industries that you actually have as in, in, in this country, Three are dysfunctional. You know, those three are energy, transport, and logistics, and, and the water infrastructure, which is quickly becoming a crisis. The only one that is functioning as it should is telecoms industry. Now, it doesn't matter which sector you're operating in. All of business and all of the South African society need the network industries to function as they should. So even if we can't get those basics right, you know, as a country, then how do we hope to get the two trillion rands investment into the country? And I think we're really going to have to look at it from that perspective. And if government is failing in these network industries, telecom is functioning as it should because it was at some point, you know, the private sector participation was actually increased. Why can't we do the same with all the other ones if government really is failing to get uh, 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 to get their story right in as far as the history is concerned? And that is the question, right? We were in a conversation very recently, Busi, the two of us with Jacob Marocha, former um, ESCOM CEO, and he said what needs to be understood is that state ownership is not state management. Shareholders can put people they trust in place and then get out of the way to let them do what needs to be done. All of that being said, if all goes according to plan, as has been laid out up to this point, Busi, how do you see it translating to economic growth and job creation? So if we get this right, I think we are in a very good position as a country to actually uh, make sure that the current environment that we're sitting in as a country, which is fraught with uncertainty, you know, uncertainty which weighs on business confidence, you know, is actually going to be addressed. Because then if business confidence is not at the right levels, then you can't get investment. If you can't get investment, the economy is not going to grow at the right levels. If the economy is not going to grow at the right levels, then we're not going to be able to address the 46% unemployment in terms of the expanded definition, where you have more people that are unemployed than those that are employed, you know, in all the provinces except Gauteng and the Western Cape. So that is what is at stake here. You know, it is making sure that the trading environment, first and foremost, you know, is actually being made to be 
conducive and only, you know, once the trading environment is conducive, then you can actually be able to get investment. So the end goal for this is really the unemployment crisis that we're facing as this country, because we all agree, you know, Alicia, that if we don't address that, you know, then South Africa is going to be sitting with, with its own version of the Arab Spring. And we saw what that looked like, you know, in July 2021. So this intervention, when all is said and done, is really trying to affect a recurrence of the July 2021 uh, uh, incident. Absolutely. And like you said, right at the top, I mean, we're looking at what's the 80-20 here. What 20% do we need to change to shift 80% off the sentiment? And once that's established, I guess, Busi, whether resources that are being committed are going to be given the space they need to do what they need to do. Busi, it's always a pleasure chatting to you. Thanks so much for your time uh, today. And thanks to our audience. Thank you for watching. Remember, this series is free. It's shareable. It's open to anyone, whether you're a PSG client or not. Until next time, from me, Alicia Sekum, it's goodbye.